I was talking to a Christian woman a while ago. She's divorced and remarried and very happy. Now, uh, both her husband and her ex-husband were Christian. But she says the two marriages were like chalk and cheese. Her first marriage looked fine from the outside. Uh, But without elaborating, she said there were things going on uh, that meant she ended up having to leave for her safety. Uh, And now she says she shares a real partnership with her second husband, the way marriage should be. They look the same from the outside. Fine, respectable Christian marriages. But from the inside, it was a different story. And that's what we've got here in Romans 7 and 8, the inside workings of two marriages. One woman married at different times to two different husbands. The two marriages looked pretty similar on the outside, but when you had a look at what was going on on the inside, they're completely different. So have a look at chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. A woman is married... But her first husband dies and she's released from her obligations to him and she's free to marry again. And Paul's point is that's what it was like for his Jewish brothers, the Jewish Christians sitting there in the Roman churches. You can tell he's speaking to Jews because of verse 1. Verse 1 says, Brothers, I'm speaking to men who know the law. Uh, Now jump down to verse 4. Now my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead so these are Jewish Christians husband number one was the law before they became Christians husband number two was Jesus two marriages that might have looked similar from the outside Jew and Christian fine, moral law abiding people But when you take a look at what's happening on the inside, it's a very different story. And Paul is the living example of it. He knows it from the inside, this difference. Uh, Now have a look at verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 summarises the first marriage before these Jews became Christians. And verse 6, the second. Have a look at verse 5. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, he's looking back and Paul includes himself in that. The sinful sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. One marriage, then a death, then a remarriage. That's the quick sketch of verses 2 and 3. That's the summary, verse 5 and verse 6. The old marriage, then the death, then the remarriage. And the rest of chapter 7 describes this first marriage. And then the first half of chapter 8 describes this second marriage. And it's going and looking under the hood, the inside workings of these two methods of morality, of living. So first up, marriage to the law. Uh, He said in verse 5 that the law just arouses sinful passions and that it leads to death. Now that's a big statement for a Jew to make. 
Paul, a Jew. And it's even shocking for a Jew to even hear that, that the law arouses passions that give rise to death. Because the law is God's word. The, the law reflects his perfect holiness and so Paul has to answer the obvious question that flows out of what he's just said. You're saying there's something wrong with the law? And he, he goes on in verse 7 to say, no, no, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is what the law produces in sinful people. See there in verse 7? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's asking the question that a Jewish hearer might ask. And then he goes on and gives the answer and he continues speaking as a Jew. As a Jew he's asked the question and then as a Jew he answers the question. Uh, Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. The Jewish law points out all the things that are sinful, like coveting, wanting something that's not yours. But the problem, Paul says, is as soon as the law says don't touch the wet paint, the wet paint is all you can think about. A friend was telling me about working in a microbiology lab with all sorts of precautions against spreading infection. And one of them is a big sign that says, caution, don't lick your lips. Because it increases the risk of ingesting airborne pathogens, I guess. And this guy said the same thing. You didn't even think about licking your lips until you saw that sign. And then by the end of the day, you've licked your lips so many times you've got cracked lips. And Paul says that's the way it works with the law. It arouses all sorts of sinful sinful passions just by telling you what you can't do. Look there in verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. Sin put me to death. God God gave the law to the Jews so that they could obey it and live, but it actually brought the punishment of death instead because their sinful nature rejected that rule. And the end result was it just became more obvious that they were lawbreakers and sin actually sort of became more obvious as a result. And then from verse 14, Paul goes into more detail about how that works, how a good law can produce sin and death instead of obedience and life. And he's still speaking as if it's him, as if he's playing the part of the Jew. He's, he's asked the question in the voice of a Jew and he keeps answering those questions with that Jewish voice. The law is good, it's just that it arouses sin and produces what's bad. So here's the problem for the Jew. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. You see, the good Jew wants to keep God's law. Psalm 1, Psalm 119. And sometimes he does, but he keeps failing. He keeps failing. The story of the Old Testament is that the Jew keeps failing. 
Jump down to verse 18. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Or down a bit further in verse 22. The good Jew loves God's law. He genuinely wants to keep it, but there's this civil war going on inside that he can't win. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. That's the sort of marriage that Jew used to be under. A prisoner, powerless to do the good he wants to do. It's the existential summary of the Old Testament. Why would you want to stay in that, says Paul. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? What's the solution to being in a body of death? A mind that wants one thing, but a body that just wants the opposite. Well, Paul answers his own question in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will rescue me. And then he sums it up, finishing this uh, investigation under the hood of this first marriage. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And so we come to chapter 8, the inner workings of the, the second marriage. Remember, it's a contrast. And he's expanding on verse 6 of chapter 7. Verse 5 and verse 6 were the two marriages. So jump back up there to verse 6. Uh, you used to be controlled by the sinful nature, but verse 6, but now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law, so we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. The old body of death could never keep the law the way the mind wanted to, but here's the solution, God's Spirit. When you became a Christian, God gives you a new heart and by his spirit you're actually set free from the old body. Chapter 8 verse 1, Paul goes on to explain what this second marriage looks like. Therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. In the old marriage, all the Lord did was condemn. Guilty, guilty, failure, failure. That old marriage was verbal and emotional domestic abuse. But there's none of that condemnation in this new marriage. For those who are in Jesus, how did that happen? Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. The law could never make us right with God because our sinful nature could never keep it. But God did when he sent Jesus to die. Jesus kept the law. Jesus took 
the law's punishment for breaking it. Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the law. And so instead of the law condemning us, God condemns sin in us. There at the end of verse 3. That's the mechanism. And look at the extraordinary result in verse 4. He condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Now something slightly unexpected there I reckon. I think we expect to see the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in Jesus. But instead it says they're fully met in us. So so what's Paul mean there? Well there's a couple of things. Firstly Remember back to chapter 6. Jesus took the law's punishment. Jesus met the law's requirements. And because he's our representative and because we're joined to Jesus, then there's a sense in which we too meet the requirement of the law. We died to satisfy the law's justice for our sin because we were in Jesus. And so there's a sense in which we meet the law's requirement. God declares us righteous, penalty paid. But there's another aspect Paul's getting at, and that's to do with sanctification, to walking in righteousness. The old way of the law could never produce obedience because of our body of death. But now God has poured his spirit into that body of death, And we're actually able to obey the law's requirements. We can actually begin to do what God wants. We are not enslaved to sin anymore. We've been set free. There's a sense in which we genuinely have free will that can choose obedience. I think Paul's getting at that aspect here as well. Uh, Look at how he goes on to describe people in whom the righteous requirement of a law is met. Verse 4. To those who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. It's our living. It's in our living that we can meet the requirements of the law. It actually says, those who walk according to the Spirit. As you walk through life, You make decisions based on what pleases God's spirit. You're controlled by his spirit. You make them with his help and his guidance and his strength. And Paul goes on to show what that looks like practically, what it means to walk in the spirit. There's a partnership involved between you and God's spirit. Have a look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8 and have a look for what we are to do and what God is to do or what God does. Verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. To see the partnership, our part is to set our minds on what the Spirit desires. Make a conscious decision to fix your attention on one sort of thing rather than another. Make it a positive choice. Don't just try not to do the wrong thing. Set your minds on the right thing. 
turn off the TV, bin the catalogues, throw out the DVDs and the magazines, get off the couch, go to a home group instead, catch up with someone from church, read the Bible and pray with them, walk away from the conversation, think before you speak, pray before you respond, choose forgiveness rather than grumbling. Choose to get involved rather than to criticise. Be part of the solution, not the problem. Set your minds on the things the Spirit desires. Get excited by eternal things, not temporary things. Store up treasure in heaven, not treasure that rusts, gets stolen, breaks down, constantly disappoints. Read a good Christian blog, visit Reformers Bookshop, buy a basket of books and actually read them. Don't just put them on the shelf. Podcast some sermons and actually listen to them, not just download them. Support a missionary and actually read their newsletter and actually pray for them. Get excited by what they're doing. Set your minds on the things the Spirit desires. Fill your mind with God's Word. Read your Bible on the train. Read it with someone else. Prepare your home group study before the night. That's your part. And do you see what God's part is? God's part is that his spirit controls your mind. Verse 6. That sounds a bit spooky, doesn't it? How does that work, that our mind is controlled by the spirit? Well, I think it's like this. It's as we do our part that God does his part. As we set our minds more and more on what the Spirit desires, we find that God's Spirit is directing us more and more. Down in verse 13 it says, If by the Spirit you put to death misdeeds. You you do it by the power of the Spirit. Back in chapter 6 it talked about reckon yourself dead to sin. Remember we said you are dead to sin, it's about remembering that you are. And I think it's the same sort of thing here. It's as we reckon that we have the Spirit living in us and we're controlled by the Spirit that we're actually able to set our minds increasingly on what the Spirit desires. We are strengthened as we recognise God's Spirit at work in us. You don't have to give in. You are not a Romans 7, you are a Romans 8. You can say no to sin this week. If you're a Christian, then you have God's spirit. He is the key to living the life God intends. A life genuinely able to keep his law. This picture, verse 9, describes you. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. That's not aspirational, that's fact, that's description. If the Spirit lives in you, you are controlled by the Spirit. Reckon that, claim it, live in it. And that means, verse 10, that resurrection power is available for you, not just in eternity, but right now, tomorrow, this afternoon. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, Your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, 
He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. You've got a nuclear power plant inside you. The the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that can give you power to say no to sin this afternoon. Claim it. Walk in that. And so we come to to the so what, verse 12. What's it got to do with us? After all, we're not Jews. Paul's writing these couple of chapters to Jews. Uh, We may not have been exactly dead in our first marriage the way Jews were, but we were still dead. We were incapable of pleasing God. But here's the so what. If you're joined to Jesus, then you've got an obligation to your new husband. Uh, You've got a motivation to please your new husband. Uh, There are blessings of being married, but there are also obligations, requirements. Look at verse 12. Therefore... Brothers, we have an obligation, if the Spirit's in us. We've got an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature. If you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. We've got an obligation. Put to death the misdeeds of the body. Set your mind on what the Spirit desires. It won't be easy. We'll see more of that next week. There'll be suffering, there'll be groaning. It won't be easy, but it will be possible. It will be possible. Obedience. Fully meeting the requirements of the law, it won't be easy, but it will be possible. We're not talking about perfectionism here, but it is possible for you not to sin. Not always, but for some period of time. You have an obligation And I love how this passage finishes. Talking about how it feels to be in this second marriage compared to the first. Just like that, that Christian woman I was talking to uh, about how she actually feels like marriage is what it should be. It should be a partnership and, and, and just made a real difference in her attitude to life. It's the difference between being a slave and a son. Uh, verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, daughters of God, children. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's the difference when you've got the Spirit. There's no fear. There's no slavery. There's sonship, relationship, connection, intimacy, joy, acceptance. God's Spirit doesn't just help us live a life of obedience. God's Spirit assures us we are children. There's a difference, isn't there? There's a huge difference between slave, slavery and sonship. You've been set free to be a son or a daughter. Free from condemnation. Free from accusation. Free from guilt. Free from doubt. Free from fear. Free from failure. Free from death. Free from frustration. 
son or daughter, free to bear fruit, to meet the requirements of the law, to please your father. As a son or daughter, to have joy and purpose and perspective and fulfilment. So go out this week as a free person, as a son, a daughter, in whom God's spirit lives. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, confess that often we wallow in self-pity and uh, we look in the mirror and we see a sinner who just struggles. Help us when we look in the mirror to see uh, a son, a daughter, uh, someone set free from condemnation and fear and slavery because your spirit is in us. Uh, Lord, that's, that's the prayer for most of us. Uh, there may be some here today, Lord, who don't know you. And, and so we pray that as they look at this description, these descriptions of two marriages, that uh, they might recognise uh, how good and true and right that second marriage is. And that they might come to you and offer themselves in repentance. And that you would uh, set them free and deliver them and fill them with your spirit and give them the will and the power to obey you and to live for you. And we pray that for all of us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.